You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Globalization, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their field of study or experience and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. Francesco Mancini, Vice Dean, Executive Education, and Associate Professor in Practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, has an extensive background in the prevention and settlement of armed conflict. He was a senior director at the International Peace Institute in New York, a think tank that works very closely with the United Nations and its member states. He has been working in and around conflict, peacekeeping, conflict resolution and negotiation for close to 20 years. In that light, we've asked him to share his views on the current military conflict in Ukraine. Sometimes I feel that, you know, looking at conflicts, it's, it's hard to see something new. <laughs> but I would say that this conflict in Ukraine is really a different level of conflict. Can you expand on that more? What, what things really strike you as something that's different and difficult compared to what you've seen over the past 20 years? Yeah, obviously, you know, one of the key factors is that this is a conflict that happens in, in the heart of Europe. It involves one of the major powers uh, in the world and has reverberations that are global. You know, in the past 20 years, we actually experienced many conflicts. I mean, obviously, the Iraq war and Afghanistan were very much in the news. But there were conflicts in Syria, there were conflicts in Libya, there were conflicts in, in, in Africa, in West and East Africa, in Yemen. You name it, right? But none of this conflict has raised the same level of worrying around the world as, 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 as the conflict in Ukraine. And I think it's because it has brought back images of a sort of a traditional war that we haven't seen in Europe since the end of World War II. It has created, obviously, a huge flow of refugees and a huge human disaster. And it's deeply involving the major powers of, of our times. So that's why everybody is focusing on it. Mm-hmm. And now it's been dragging on for almost two months. What do you see as far as a possible end? Yeah, it's very hard. And I would say even probably a bit foolish to make prediction about these things. So on one hand, you can, you can say that we might know what the end game should be. Right? We, w- we would like to see at the end. But the challenge is to get there. And mm-hmm. I think we should think about solutions in, in steps, not as a one go. The most urgent aspect is obviously the humanitarian aspect, to limit the human suffering on the ground as much as possible. And so to me, that's why peace negotiations are still important, even if they're not producing uh, a peace agreement, right? Focusing on, you know, money, humanitarian corridors, ceasefires, and everything that can be done, even if very hard to achieve on the ground. More on the long term, I think the challenge is politically how you identify that kind of end game. On one hand, you know, respect international law and, and, and give back to Ukraine its sovereignty. But, but on the other hand, also taking in consideration Russians' security concerns. And I think that is the real challenge here. And you mentioned negotiations and the urgency for humanitarian needs to be considered first, but so far that hasn't happened. I mean, the the attempts at humanitarian corridors have not been honored. 
you know, it's still been difficult. There's been so many civilians targeted and there has not been any attempts at a ceasefire that have gone very far. So how is this going to improve at all? Or is it just going to have to have a military solution or a clear military victor? So I would say that, first of all, again, for, for, for people who have been observing conflict in the past, this is not a new challenge, but it's not a reason for not attempting negotiation. If you think about Syria, another you know, conflict that you know, raised quite a bit of attention in the past. In Syria, you know, there were constant negotiations in Geneva between the parties, but you know, very often the ceasefire that were agreed in Geneva, they were actually never implemented on the ground because there are obviously challenges on the ground. Some are even just logistical <laughs> challenges. In some cases, there is no real willingness on the other side to implement these ceasefires or respect some agreements related to humanitarian relief. Again, no, no reason for not continuing to do that. And, and I think that at the margin, some of these things are actually you know, happening, but not to the scale that you know, we, we, will, we will want. When it comes to, you, know, you mentioned the, the Victor piece, I think this is the real political challenge here. Because I think, you know, all sitting here, we, we, we would like to see a sovereignty and order be restored and the integrity of the, Ukrainian, of the Ukrainian state. But I think we're also politically very concerned of what Putin would do with his back against the wall, if you imagine some kind of uh, victory from, from the Ukrainian side. And so there are, you know, some political issues which are related to the security concerns and, and of, of Russia and, and, and how those can be addressed, respecting, obviously, the sovereignty and uh, the decisions of other countries. I think that is mm-hmm. the key challenge. And as of now, I don't think we can still envision what that actual compromise and solution would be. And in fact, a lot of experts say that the most likely scenario for now is some sort of fighting continuing, probably focusing more in, in the east of the Ukrainian as, as you know, what we're seeing in these days, maybe some you know, escalations of violence, but overall some kind of low intensity violence continuing there. And I think this is also important to remember that the invasion of Ukraine didn't start two months ago, but actually started in 2014. So mm-hmm. this, this conflict has been going on for a very, very long time. Ukraine was already a country at war, and this escalation has obviously made things you know, worse and, and, and more complicated. Uh, but you could imagine some kind of scenario going down the road in which there is more low-intensity conflict lingering for, for quite a bit of time. If that is, in fact, what happens, and as one scenario, the high-level, high-intensity conflict, many people have suggested that this is just a sign that the international system does not work, that the, you know, the UN, which is supposedly set up to prevent situations like this and has Russia as a a permanent member of the Security Council. People are asking, what is the point of the international system? What's your opinion about that? And how do you see the international system coping with this? Yes. Listen, I think this is actually a major challenge for the UN and more generally speaking for our sort of global system. After all, you know, the UN has been set up to uh, saving succeeding generations from the scourge of war. However, it has limits. And I think this is a perfect example of where this limit stands. 
And the limit stands particularly when one of the permanent members of the Security Council, so one of those five countries that have a veto power, are actually involved in the conflict. That's, you know, that's the challenge. I, what I, I, I would still have a sort of more positive outlook in terms of the UN reaction because given these limitations, I think the UN reacted with a very strong condemnation through the General Assembly. Now, obviously, resolutions in the General Assemblies don't really have teeth because they're non-binding, right? There's no real enforcement. So I mm-hmm. obviously agree that it's you know, hard to implement whatever is decided in the General Assembly. But with that said, when you have a resolution that condemned this invasion supported by 141 countries out of 193, to me, is a very strong sign. And, you know, only just a bunch of countries actually voted against it. Many other just abstained. So I think the signal to the global governance systems are quite clear, are quite strong. Also, the sanction system that has been put in place, possibly one of the strongest sanctions system ever devised, has collected quite a bit of support. You know, there are obviously challenges. And, and you know, of, of what are the rules, you know, of this sanction system and how you... Uh, decide to do certain things. So the system is not perfect at the global level. But Mm -hmm. I would also not agree with those who think that this is a sign of the the demise of the United Nations. I would even argue that for the big powers to have a veto, it's a bit of a guarantee that they will not leave. You know, I don't want to go back in in history too much, but uh, there was a precursor of the United Nations, which was the League of Nations. And the League of Nations was a body that was very much based on consensus. Basically, every country had a vote. And, you know, as history teaches us, you know what happened when war began. All the countries that started to invade other countries just simply left the League of Nations. Germany, you know, left in 1933. Japan also in 1933. Italy in 1937. And, you know, and that was the end of the League, basically, right? So what we actually want in a system is that actually countries still stay engaged. Obviously, some countries will fight for their own national interest, but I think it's, you know, it's important that you know, the organization is still there and, and manages to keep this conversation going. In light of that, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, you know, that politically there does need to be a solution that uh, restores sovereignty to Ukraine, but also recognizes Russia's legitimate security concerns that seems to be where the un would play a part but then we see things like what finland and other scandinavian countries that were non-aligned now wanting to join nato are they making things worse for themselves is that outcome becoming less possible because of this conflict yes i i again i i I didn't necessarily say that these are legitimate or not legitimate security concerns Mm. In, in our field, we have something that we call threat perception, which is actually something that dictates very much, you know, how countries react to security concern. Um, and threat perception, you know, changes uh, depending on where you sit and also depend when mm-hmm. you sit. So threat perception changes over time and over space. And that is something that really shapes a, a country's reaction, right, to security issues. And I think, for example, one of the reasons a lot of Asian countries 
condemn this invasion is because, you know, the scenario of a country start to invade other countries is not something that anybody wants to see. Mm -hmm. So threat perception is very important. There is obviously a threat perception of a certain kind in Russia. But we also have to recognize that there is a threat perception coming from countries sitting very close to Russia. And so obviously they are reacting to, to that threat perception, thinking about what their alternatives are. And we have to remember that the NATO enlargement of the 90s was also a NATO enlargement due to the fact that a lot of Eastern European countries really wanted to join NATO. They really wanted, after you know decades of, of being occupied and being part of, of the Soviet empire, they wanted to have a sort of a different, different options right, out there. And we can mm-hmm. discuss how wise could have been from the Western point of view. But I go back to my key point of the threat perception. East European countries have their own threat perception right, as well. So they have mm-hmm. their own concern. And that's one of the reasons why some countries want, for example, going to a NATO. And maybe they might feel that neutrality is not a guarantee any longer. And could you describe just what other impacts this war has had more generally at the global level? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think that, you know, you, you have all these geopolitical issues that we were discussing, right? And I think uh, there is obviously this broader conversation happening right now about the sort of global security architecture at the Boao Forum for Asia. Um, Chinese President Xi Jinping has talked about the idea of the principle of the indivisible security which is something that we're seeing coming out of Russia and and China in these days. It's actually a very interesting concept because indivisible security is actually a very European concept that came out of the 1970s. It was actually included in the Helsinki Final Act in 1975, which basically set sort of ground rules for the interaction between two blocks. And in that particular case, NATO, on the Western Alliance, and the Warsaw Pact, which was the the Soviet Union and its satellite states. So when you call for a principle like indivisible security, you obviously have in mind a very sort of block-defined world in which you have two sides, satellite states around these two sides, and none of them should move, right? Should, Should make any move because any move would create a security concern on the other side. And actually, we call this a security dilemma, because when you try to protect yourself, right, you might create a threat on the other side. But, you know, this idea of the world divided in blocks, it's, I think, a very outdated view of the world. And it's also a a view that not all countries in the world might accept, particularly small countries which might not see themselves as simply a kind of satellite of some kind of block, right? But actually countries have full agency or making decisions. They might make wrong decisions, right? But yeah, we're not talking about right and wrong. We're again talking about, you know, full agency of, of countries in their own uh, in their security matters. So I think, you see, there's a huge debate now here that's opening up and obviously it doesn't have, you know, easy solutions. There are obviously economic impacts, I think, you know, you can read a lot about sanctions. Obviously, as I said, it's a, it's a very strong regime, sanction regime. 
And so I think that has big implication. Uh, some of these has also built on current economic trends that are not very positive, like inflation or energy cost, food cost, and things like that. So definitely there are some of these implications as well. Obviously, you know, there are supply chain concerns. I would say one final from someone who's been, you know, kind of looking at conflict for, for, for many years. I would say there is also an issue of accountability. And I'm particularly referring to atrocities committed in war. And once again, atrocity in wars are nothing new. Today, we have technology that allowed us to see these things in a much clearer way. But as you can imagine right now, obviously, there are raising voices of keeping Russia, for example, accountable for certain crimes and atrocities that are committed in Ukraine. How these will work into that kind of peace that we were discussing before, it's a huge question, right? But there is an issue of accountability because there is the law of going to war, but there is also the law of what you do in war. So it's not a free-for-all. And so this issue of accountability, I think, is also very important, particularly when it comes to a big power. And uh, I think that's also something that has an impact on the overall conversation around peace and, and conference solution. I know that some other nations have been trying to assist as far as documenting atrocities and referring things to the International Criminal Court, is that correct? And and other correct. efforts, but is that is that enough? Will that lead to some accountability or are you worried that it might fall through and or, or not not happen? Well, I am obviously very concerned that this will never go through. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an incredibly complex. It, it's not as straightforward as you can imagine, right? So, mm -hmm. obviously, the International Criminal Court is investigating uh, possible war crimes in Ukraine. But there is no guarantee that that would, you know, really go anywhere. Because international criminal law has its own limits. And so mm -hmm. there are, you know... First of all, there are, it's limited to certain specific crimes like genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and criminal aggression. Also, it, it, it affects the, the, the country that sign up to the court because both Russia and Ukraine, they actually signed the statute, but they did not ratify it. So it's a bit of a complicated issue also from the legal point of view. But I think primarily mm -hmm. it's a political problem. <laughs> and the political problem mm -hmm. is that, you know, Everything we learn about conflict is that in the long term, if you want a sustainable peace, you need also to address issue of responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Many countries have done that, you know, disparate countries, from Cambodia to mm -hmm. Argentina, just to mention two. In the long term, you need to address these issues. And this, I think, it's a, it's a huge challenge in this particular conflict. Can I bring the conversation to Asia in a way, and ask you to kind of describe what was, was the reaction to this war in ASEAN, in the ASEAN nations? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, first of all, I think one mistake would be to think that, you know, Southeast Asia is far from, from Ukraine and, and, and so shouldn't really interest us here in this part of the world, but in reality, it does have an impact. And I think what I was saying before about threat perception is also very important here, particularly in a part of the world in which there is a history of interference and, and, and country, you know, 
stepping into the borders of other countries. And I think this history has also has led to having uh, Southeast Asian countries uh, supporting in a large number the General Assembly resolution that condemned Russian invasion. Eight out of 10 ASEAN states supported the resolution, and two were actually sponsored, promoting one is Singapore, and the other is Cambodia, which might actually mm. surprise, but Cambodia has also history, right? That mm-hmm. has an impact on, on maybe on this decision. The, the two countries that, you know, abstained were Vietnam and Laos. I think there are some, obviously, relationships that are also with Russia, particularly in terms of strategic partnership. Back to Vietnam is one of the three compressive strategic partners of, of Russia with India and China. Um, and has a heavy dependence on on Russian weaponry. So, you know, that might be one of the reasons. Interestingly enough, Myanmar has supported the resolution. However, the current ambassador in the UN is not representing the military government of Myanmar. So there's a bit of an outlier Mm -hmm. here that Myanmar actually, the military government has supported Russia, but not in this particular case in the UN. But with that said, obviously, you know, for, particularly for countries like Singapore, but, you know, many others in the region, such a, 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 a violation of international law is, is a huge red flag. And the principle of international law is, is fundamental and has to be respected in this case. And I think that's what has driven the Singapore position. This is Singapore is not uh, uh, pro-Ukraine or anti-Russia or anything. is pro-principle of international law. And so this is a, an absolutely existential threat. Is such a violation. Uh, obviously, other impacts, uh, you know, economic impacts. I mentioned before, all this is going to make things more complicated when it comes to inflation, for example, increasing food prices and, and oil spike. Sanction, I think there are limited disruption in this part of the world. There is not such a dependence on Russia economy in this part of the world. Maybe there's a question uh, on the sort of secondary impact uh, related on China, for example. You know, if, if, if indirectly, you know, you... you you're dealing with a country that is violating the sanction. But I, I still feel that the, the sanction is, is impact is not so huge in, in this part of the world. And it is primarily an issue of, as I said, of international law and obviously some economic uh, impact. You said that you, you cannot predict and no one would want to predict, but it definitely seems like this could go on m- much longer. Are there any international players that have any kind of influence that could make a difference? I do agree with you that the current situation is something that unfortunately will probably continue for a while. And uh, obviously it's hard to predict in terms of level of violence, but Mm -hmm. it is kind of a a safe assumption uh, to assume that, you know, the the current kind of uh, scenario of fighting in the east of the country will continue and maybe having, you know, days where violence escalate, but overall have a more lower intensity conflict. All the scenarios that I've been reading about of sort of regime change, both in Ukraine and in Russia, I think there are a complete outliers and I don't see that to be really likely. Who can do something? Well, and, and, and we have seen different attempts, right, coming from many different directions, including Israel, for example, or maybe Turkey. Or I, I, you know, I, very interestingly, I think China would have potentially an interesting role to play as a mediator. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a role that they w- they want to play, but in, in terms of you know 
if I think of peace as a as a global public good, I I can mm-hmm. see a country like China that could contribute to that, you know, and, and and could help to bridge that gap, because obviously Western countries are not, you know, positioned in this case very well as they've been heavily sided with Ukraine. But you can also think in the past there's also been kind of a multilateral setting with m- multiple mediators, not just one. Mm-hmm. Where, where everybody plays kind of a slightly kind of guarantor role. So you could also think of such a configuration in which you have, you know, a group of Western countries, maybe countries that they don't have such a vested role, maybe they're not NATO members, but they can still play a facilitation role, and, you know, China. But mm-hmm. again, as of today, nobody has been really able to edge there. But primarily because I think that the political stars are not aligned. Again, no excuse for not doing negotiation. But again, it's, it's quite normal to have both war on the ground and talk. Most war have this happening at the same time. So it's still worth continuing and the scenarios on the ground will shape the conversation on the table as well. So there is an interaction mm-hmm. between these two. So I think it's still a bit early to identify a clear way out or thought we might you know, think of what this final solution could be for us, it it will still take, you know, many steps before we get there. Before we go, I just, I can't let you go without asking about the information war that's going on and the misinformation and the way that all this is playing out on social media and how it's affecting the political reality of what's going on. Yes. Um, Yes, this is obviously, you know, a big part of, 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 of the war conversation. Um, let me just say, first of all, that, you know, propaganda is not something new in war. Countries mm-hmm. fight over information, have fought over information, the control of information. And during any war, countries try to shape the narrative of that war. Um, what is very new here is that we have new tools to do that, which are new mm-hmm. tools that reach us straight into our living room, live so there's basically no no gap between what's happened and and what you see. This is the obviously new, and uh, it, it creates all new dynamics that um, are obviously very very hard to control. Countries are trying to shape the narratives with with real news as well as the fake ones. I think there are organizations that are doing a lot of work to try to help us to understand what is real, and what is not. Unfortunately, some of these technologies are getting so good that is getting harder and harder. Some are blatantly false, and it's kind of quite easy to to, to find out. But it always requires a bit of proactive role from our side as an audience. And so I, I, I think that the main challenge here is that we need to educate us as recipient of information to do that little extra step to check. Because in some cases... The checking is very easy, and you can immediately find out that, for example, some of the footages, some of the images are coming from completely unrelated issues. You know, the source of the news, for example, you know, just go go to check where is it coming from. Overall, I think that the main principle is don't just buy whatever gets into your phone, but do that <laughs> right, little yeah. extra mile, you know, that do the little mm-hmm. bit of extra work to check. Okay, well, thank you very much for your insight. I wish there was something more optimistic to end on, but I, it doesn't seem that way. We'll just have to wait and see and hope that, like you said, that 
people still work towards a peaceful resolution, even if it seems perhaps impossible or the challenges are too great. I agree with you. It's obviously very hard to be positive on such a topic or optimistic. However, in any dire situation like this one, particularly when there is physical violence involved, there is always a light. And I think we have seen the way that Ukrainian people has reacted to this situation. We also have seen many Russian people, how they reacted, you know, Mm -hmm. against this. And we've seen an international community, let's say, let's call it this way, a global community of people getting together on the refugees issue, as well as kind of, you know, making points on international law. So it's not all dark here. There are people who are working very hard to find uh, a solution to that. What obviously is, 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 is dark is the, the, is the ground, is mm-hmm. the suffering of the people on the ground, which is always the first concern when you're trying to address a conflict. That's your primary concern, is to minimize that human suffering, is to find political solutions that can hold, that would uh, you know, save life and make a uh, life of people targeted by violence less miserable and less, and less dangerous. So that, that's my kind of optimistic angle, if I can. I, mm-hmm. I do realize that, you know, it's in these days it's very hard, is that, you know, we're not going to give up. The, the, there are people working um, on, on peace. There are people working on, on solutions that, you know, might eventually bring uh, peace back. But it is... Mm-hmm a very, a very uh, dark road to, to walk on until, you know, better days. But again, I, I, w- I would leave that option open. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't uh, be completely, completely pessimistic. Very good. Well, thank you very much. And on that, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. If you'd like to subscribe to the Globalization Newsletter, look for the link in the description or find us on Facebook at Global is Asian. Global is Asian.